What's going on, guys? AJ here, back again with another episode of the E1B2 podcast. And yes, we have another interview. I'm not even going to tell you who it is because he's such a phenomenal big guest. I'm going to let him kind of break down who he is and what he's about and and what his overall perspectives are for himself. Um, but I can guarantee this guy has 30 plus years of experience. This guy, he's a killer, guys, in a good way. Please don't uh, take that any other way. When I say he's a killer, I mean he is uh, amazing at penetrating organizations, bringing value, changing process, really unpacking internal communications, really unpacking employee experience, really changing the way organizations view both of those functions. So yes, he is a monster. He is someone that genuinely loves this work, genuinely loves bringing value and his perspectives and his, and his, and, and the way from my personal opinion, that he's been able to navigate the last few decades and change and ebb and flow to the realities of the marketplace, right? Because I'm sure back in the, what would that be? It's 2020 now. So I'm assuming back in the 80s, back in the 90s, and then now heading into the 2010s and 2020s. So I'm assuming things have changed, right? The the employees' desires have changed. The internal communication landscape has changed. The employee experience expectations have changed. Everything has changed, and he's been able to ebb and flow and be so nimble to be able to kind of understand what those changes are and adapt to it seamlessly and have zero ego along the process and have complete and full empathy along the process. I was so honored to be able to have this guy on today. I worked very hard for months to bring him onto this podcast, and I finally landed the guy. The man, the myth, the legend. almost said his name. I'm going to wait for you guys to unpack who it is. Um, so anyway, I'm done with the um, the pleasantries here. I'm done uh, ranting as I often do. I know for a fact this is going to be one of the greatest episodes, honestly, one of the greatest episodes in the history of the E1B2 podcast. Thank you so much to the guest. I almost said his name again. Uh, thank you so much to the guest. Thank you so much to everyone that has downloaded this podcast. Uh, I am truly honored uh, for this guest coming on today. I am truly honored for everyone that has consumed, appreciated, download, and listened to every single episode of the E1B2 podcast. Time for AJ to shut up. Let's get into the episode. <laughs> So yeah, this is how I kind of do it, and I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to join this podcast. Um, we kind of did our check in off off air here, so uh, I'm, I'm happy that you're doing well. I'm happy that um, you're looking forward to having a uh, pleasant day. And um, any 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 other thoughts that are on your mind at a high level? Any any other things happening in your personal business or personal life or just things that may be top of mind before we hop in? Well, it's great to be here, obviously. And, you know, today is uh, a historic day in a lot of, a lot of different ways. And so, you know, I'm, I'm eager to see how people act and react and, um, you know, what the country is going to do to move forward um, on a, professional note. Um, things have been really busy uh, for my firm, uh, doing a lot of work uh, with clients, uh, particularly around um, strategy and planning for 21. Mm. Uh, some of them are, you know, relooking at things like mission, vision, and values, um, mm, yeah. strategic priorities, uh, essential behaviors, and a lot of cultural uh, elements to support those things. Um, others uh, have realized during the pandemic that, you know, hey, we thought we could reach all of our employees, but <laughs> come to find out uh, we can't. And so um, a lot of them are looking at their internal comms plans, especially their channels, um, particularly if they have a large group of employees who are, you know, sort of digitally disconnected be they manufacturing or retail or healthcare or call centers. Um, and so they've all along not been able to reach those employees, but prior to the pandemic didn't really make that a priority, but now it's certainly a priority. And so many of them are relooking at things like apps and uh, revamped internet sites and, you know, um, 
Yammer and Slack and a bunch of collaboration tools. And so uh, it's been uh, it's been a busy uh, fall and looks like it'll continue through the end of the year. So no, no complaints about that for sure. Are you finding that companies are being uh, proactive and on the offense or are you finding company like, you know, without naming names, what, what companies would you say are are reacting on the offense, you know, really taking the realities of the world today and saying to themselves forever and always, we will continue to be more proactive. Uh, any examples that maybe you can speak to? Well, I think the ones that are being proactive, um, if you can call it that, um, they, they're still a little bit reactive, but the ones that are being more proactive are the ones where it is easier to do that. So uh, they've got a large majority, if not all of their employees who are digitally connected. Um, and those tend to be, you know, professional services uh, and corporate headquarters type mm -hmm. employees so that they can easily reach them um, over certainly email, but, you know, Zoom and Microsoft Teams and Slack, um, Yammer uh, and mobile apps. Um, they've been, I think, fairly proactive in making sure all of those things work and are set up right and are being used uh, in the right way. I think the ones that have find themselves uh, sort of in reactive mode are the ones who have a little more of a challenge reaching those uh, employees, um, whether they're digitally disconnected or not. So certainly those who are on the front lines, um, you know, they've always been a challenge. They always will be a challenge. Um, and so they are, those companies are pretty much in reactive mode right now. But that's also true for digitally connected employees they may have who are in other regions. For example, if you're a global employer and you've got employees uh, in the UK, you know, they just went through uh, a second lockdown. Yep. So, you know, they're in a totally different situation than maybe we are here in the States right now. So all of those things kind of, you know, force companies to make up, um, you know, strategies and plans on the fly because, you know, as things ebb and flow, they've got to be able to, you know, turn on and off and react and act based on things that change, you know, pretty much week to week now, which is totally different from how they're used to operating. Exactly. Um, well, let's do this. Let's take a step back. Tell everyone just in a 30 second bubble of who you are, uh, what this great firm that you have been alluding to these last few minutes, uh, you know, who you guys are and what you do. And, and then we'll, uh, We'll continue to hop right in. Great. Well, I, uh, I've got a long career in internal comms, uh, employee experience and change management. I've done pretty much nothing but that for the last 31 years. Um, half of that time has been uh, on the corporate side, working with companies like Siemens, um, GE, and Newell Brands. Uh, running uh, the internal comms function uh, and sometimes uh, the entire global comms function, both internal and external. Um, and then the other half of the career has been on the agency and consulting side. Um, did a lot of work uh, for uh, MSL, a big PR firm, uh, as well as Porter Novelli uh, and Weber Shandwick. And the last uh, Several years, uh, I've been a solo consultant focused primarily uh, on internal comms, employee experience, and change management. Uh, my clients uh, vary from uh, what I like to say the Fortune 500 and the less fortunate 5,000. Yeah. Um, you know, every organization uh, has internal comms challenges. It doesn't matter what size uh, or even what industry. As soon as you hire uh, employee number two, you have internal comms challenges, um, and that's where my focus is, and that's really my passion. You know, I've been doing this my whole career, uh, and I love it. So uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be able to do that. The firm is called Audacity. The website is thinkaudacity.com. Um, there's a lot of content there and ideas and creative uh, solutions to different problems. So if people want to check that out, that'd be great. 
I appreciate all of that. Um, and I, I think I, I came across you guys some time ago from uh, Kristen Hancock. You guys were you guys were bringing her in for one of your first annual speaking uh, your your conferences, and um, and I think I had reached out and she was on my podcast and I heard a lot about you and, and what you guys were doing. And you know, for me, you know, a lot of my background uh, has certain elements of of internal communications within it. I really kind of play more on the kind of leadership strategic uh, brand building employee experience side of things, which mm-hmm. obviously, you know, internal comms is a, is a, is a very close relative to those, to those different di- dynamics. And so um, I think that's how I first came across you. Um, but, but I guess here, here's my first question. I, w- I want to start off this way, kind of thinking about employee experience. Um, something that I've been thinking about, for like the last few years, but now I think people are starting to really understand and unpack and realize is whether it's throughout um, COVID, whether it's for other reasons that, uh, that, that are just at a macro level. I think a lot of companies are starting to realize that um, employees are looking for a little bit more flexibility from a remote perspective, potentially. They're not always they don't always have a desire to work in that their city, that 30 mile radius. They're not always looking to, to, to kind of have that be a norm for them any longer. And so I think there's a, a competitive advantage certain companies can try to have when it comes to certain aspects of employee experience to try to gain access to the, to that best talent. Um, from that perspective, what are you seeing? What are you, what are you feeling? What are your thoughts on companies that need to understand that reality that it's no longer about, that 30 mile radius is no longer about trying to get the best talent in your city or even in your state. Well, I it's think now what kind has of, happened yeah. is um, for a long time, uh, employees have known they can work from home. And it's been uh, difficult, I think, to convince companies of that. Some of them have embraced that um, a little more uh, readily uh, than others. But I think the employees themselves have always known that they can work from home and they can be just as productive. Um, There was actually a study that was done that I was reading uh, the end of 2019, first of 2020, about uh, work from home. And that study said it would take about three years um, for uh, a whole industry and certainly you know, individual companies to finally move into and embrace a work from home strategy uh, right three years. And then suddenly all of this stuff uh, with the pandemic happened and most organizations made that transition in about three weeks. And mm. I think what that mm. did okay, was prove um, certainly from the employee perspective that yes, you know, what we've been saying all along is we can work from home and be just as productive from home. Um, and in fact, uh, most of us would prefer to do that. Uh, companies, you know, were reticent to do it, then they had to do it. And then they realized, yes, that it is possible to be able to do that. Now, there's an asterisk next to that because no one really thought that they'd be working from home with also spouses, roommates, significant others, kids, dogs, all these other distractions uh, thrown into the mix. Uh, but the basic, you know, work from home model uh, actually works. And, you know, we've proven that out. And so I think the expectation now for employees is, hey, we've proven that it works. You know, we've been able to hit our KPIs and keep the organization going. And, you know, keep us uh, as successful as we could be, given all the other, um, you know, um, challenges in the marketplace. And so now that's our expectation going forward. So unless you have a really good reason for me to actually come back into the office, I want to work from home. Every now and then I want to come into the office and that would be great because there's certainly some cultural and collaboration advantages to doing that. But uh, that needs to be the exception and not the rule. Um, And I think that's a new expectation that employees have. Hey, guys, uh, technology was not our friend. Sorry about the interruption here. Uh, There was a little bit of a a lag and I just wanted to kind of clean it up and edit it. He couldn't hear one of the questions that I asked. Sorry about that. Let's get back into the episode. 
So you asked a question about working from home and then you didn't hear any of the answer. Oh, no, I heard all of those answers. I then, yeah, I then had a follow-up question that I'm assuming you didn't hear. Oh, no, I didn't hear anything after you, after I answered, it was just silence. It looked like it dropped. Got it. Um, My, my question to you was, um, have you ever read the book Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday? Um, I have not read that book, no. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it, um, and uh, it, particularly in the context of senior leaders and just sort of companies themselves Got it. Um, about, uh, you know, ego and how a lot of that plays into decisions that get made yeah. at the corporate level. Exactly. So um, you know a bit about my, my background and my context when we first met, but You know, being I I still to this day, even though it's now been about five years that I've kind of decided to make the decision to be fully ingrained in this industry. um, I look at myself very much as an outsider. Right. I'm a young guy going on 12 years as as a professional. So half pretty much half of the time you've spent being a professional. That's my entire career. Um, And uh, but but less. Are you calling me old? I, I think I may be talking to you all. Uh, a nice word for that is seasoned. Seasoned. Old is good. Old is good. That means Old is just fine. That's right. Um, and so, and so, you know, a little less than that has been spent in this space. And so I'm still very much an outsider. And so something that I do well is I challenge norms and I like to break things. Because once I got into this space, Jason, and you probably can resonate with this, I started looking around and started talking to a lot of people. And I started realizing that everyone was saying the same things and had the same advice and the same tips and the same perspectives. I was seeing a lot of group think in this industry, which maybe we can unpack another day. But the one question that I wasn't seeing enough of that Ryan Holiday speaks to, whether it's policies, best practices, frameworks, reasons of why employees cannot work from home, a lot of these things were based around ego. There was no objective bottom line, black and white, you know, metric that they could point at to say no this is why we want this policy to be in place or this is why we want this workflow to be designed this way or this internal communication structure to be this way or you need to come into the office like a lot of it was based around what their first boss or their first internship or their first mentor or their Mm -hmm. first company did slash what makes them most comfortable as a leader to be able to execute to you know feed into their insecurities or feed into their own kind of which they like to execute as a leader, you know, a lot of it is around ego. So have you ever thought about it from that lens, you know, about like 90% of what I'm doing right now with my work is really unpacking the ego game and really questioning why things are in place and, and really pushing leaders to give me an objective answer outside of the fact that this is just the way I want it to be. And this is my company. Have you ever thought about those things? Do you do work on those things to uh, kind of unpack that for leaders? Or how how do you think about ego? Oh, gosh. I I run into that all the time, Anthony, and I have uh, my whole career. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with ego. But I think uh, you brought up a great point, which is I think the major reason that things like that not only happen but continue to happen is that age-old saying of, because that's how we've always done it around here. Yeah. And I think people just get ingrained in, that's how we've always done it around here, um, and so we're going to keep doing it that way. Um, that doesn't mean it's the right way, but it does mean it's the way, and unless someone has a compelling reason why we ought to do something different, we're just going to keep doing it that way, which is so curious to me, because if you think about all of the leaders uh, in an organization and sort of how they got to those roles, um, every single one of them started out as an intern somewhere. Every yep. single one of them started out in an entry level role. And I guarantee you, when they were in those roles, they looked up at the top of the organization and thought, wow, I don't understand what they're doing up there. And if I ever get Uh, to the point where I have a role like that, I'm going to do things differently. And then lo and behold, they get up there and get in one of those roles, and then they end up doing the exact same thing that they used to think was horrible to do, which is maintain status quo. And I don't know why that is. I don't know at what point it is in your career that you lose touch with reality so that you no longer think that way. It's unfortunate, but 
you know, there's another fantastic book called Good to Great um, uh, by Jim Collins. And, you know, his uh, premise is that companies need to have bold, hairy, audacious goals. And I think companies are oh, pretty good at bold, pretty good at hairy and pretty good at gold at goals, but horrible at being audacious. And so um, it's because they're stuck in, this is the way we've always done it mm -hmm. around here. And for them to really break out of that and to, you know, have a culture, have a product, have a brand that really makes a difference, they've just got to be a lot more audacious. And I think humans mostly want to be that individually, but together as a group, that group think starts to take over and everybody wants to do what's safe and secure and not risky, whether it's the right thing to do or not. It's, it's maddening. You know what I think happens often, which I don't think enough people are talking about. I've studied neuroscience for, for, for a lot of years now, ever, honestly, ever since I became an entrepreneur, I dove deep into neuroscience and psychology. And I think, you know, ego and comfortability uh, are, are interesting um, co-partners in this situation. And I guess follow with me here if, if I can maybe unpack this. And to the audience here uh, in the listeners, I do apologize. Me and Jason were laughing about this earlier. Uh, people decide to cut grass at the wrong moment. So I apologize for the background <laughs> noise. Uh, but, um, you know, so for me, when it comes to like neuroscience and psychology, what I've realized with human beings is that, you know, we like to do what makes our brains feel comfortable, right? And and what I'm realizing is I don't know what that I don't know what that inflection point is, Jason. I don't know if it's, you know, the first time they get that that bonus and salary and they get that management title where mm -hmm. the ego takes over. I don't know if it's, you know, them sitting back as an intern, subconsciously, you know, watching, you know, those that they're being led by and watching how they navigate, you know, being a leader with a lot of egotistical behavior. And that seeps into the subconscious. I don't know what the inflection point is, but what I do know is that somehow, some way, it got deep into the subconscious. And so, what they realize is that subconsciously or consciously, whatever is comfortable and safe in their own brain, to their own kind of comfortability, their own perspectives, that's what they immediately go to. Um, I, I I dealt with this at a very significant level about seven months ago with my former employer. And I had to call it out one day. I said, you're doing what's comfortable to your brain. You're not thinking about anyone else's perspectives, feelings, backgrounds, whatever the case is. You are doing what makes most sense to you because change management hurts. Change management is uncomfortable. And right now your brain is trying to process and question what's been already kind of ingrained into your subconscious. Now, I probably got a little too sciencey and a little too deep for some listeners, but um, I don't know if you ever think about it from that lens, maybe not that deeply, but I always oh, uh, go to a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent, particularly when it comes to change, you know, to me, change management is kind of a grown up version uh, of internal comms. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you go to any organization and say, Hey, it looks like we need some change around here. And the leaders will all say, yep. There needs to be a whole bunch of change around here. All these other people need to change uh, except for me. And so everybody agrees that change needs to happen, but no one ever wants to change themselves. And so uh, that's where the rub is, because for change to really happen, you know, it takes everybody uh, moving in that direction, not just, you know, a handful of leaders or this, you know, group of employees. It has to be everybody moving in that direction. And that, that to me is the hardest part about change is everybody agrees it needs to happen. They just think that everybody else needs to change, not themselves. When you work with leaders, have you ever tried, and I'm asking this selfishly, I just worked on something this morning. I have this ritual of three hours a, a day of studying in the mornings. Mm -hmm. And I kind of work on like my own, like I just play with different things, look at case studies, look at white papers and like adjust where I would change things and apply different, you know, structures and, and best practices. Um, and uh, have you ever tried um, having managers and executives and employees in general create their own IDP plans when it comes to change management? So create their own individual development plans or their own mapping of new behaviors that they need, that need to replace their old behaviors to make change truly operational. Have you ever, I tried the. I was reading about this this morning. Have you ever tried the the tactic of 
of from like a rough draft perspective, having manager, employee, executive, whatever the case is, someone try that by themselves first and you kind of sit back and facilitate that process instead of immediately as a consultant or an outsider going in and providing the 10 best strategies of why things need to change and kind of hijacking the moment. Have you ever tried to, I guess, just allow them to kind of work through it first or what are oh, your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that to me, that's it. That is the best approach to take. Otherwise, um, change feels like they're ha- change feels like it's happening to them and not by for and through them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a consultant or you're a senior leader in an organization or even, you know, uh, entry level person in an organization and you are faced with uh, helping the organization go through change, the last thing that you want to do is say, all right, here's all the change that needs to happen. And you go do this and you go do this and you go do this. Um, human nature says, hey, um, I'm not going to do it simply because you told me to do it. <laughs> I didn't have a say so in what it is that we're doing and how I ought to be able to do it. And I think for any of those change uh, initiatives to work, it has to start exactly the way you just described, which is each individual sitting down and coming up with what they need to do themselves um, to move that change forward and then align that with what the organization needs uh, broadly to do to move forward as well. Um, but it really starts with exactly what you just described, which is each individual sitting down and figuring out what it is they're doing, what it is they need to be doing that's new and different, and how to overcome that gap, and then make sure that those new behaviors are aligned broadly with what everybody else needs to be doing. But you're exactly right. It's got to start with the individual. It cannot start with a big old golden plan and a PowerPoint that gets emailed to everybody with the expectation that you're going to execute it immediately. It just doesn't work. How do you... How do you operationalize it and make it consistent? Um, and so this is what I'm asking. So again, from afar, right? I, I still feel like a stranger to this whole this whole world. So from afar, what I've noticed, whether it's change management, whether it's internal communications, whether it's other employee experience strategies, whether it's leadership things, there's like different phases and moments where there's like this big push, this big surge of of workshops or or internal like keynotes and fireside chats or internal facilitation moments. I'm not seeing, and again, from afar, and I'm sure you do this great work and I'm sure there are companies that do this, but from afar, I'm seeing like surges and moments rather than consistent operational um, best practices and accountability structures in place where at all times there are moments where individuals are checking and auditing their behaviors and checking and auditing their, their internal communications and checking and auditing what's happening. Not one time a year, not towards the back half of 2020, heading into 2021. What are some tips and advice and perspectives that you've seen around making this more operational and consistent and something that everyone can be measured and held accountable to? Um, because I think you would agree if you do it that way, just as if you would do any other tactic in the sales or finance or marketing divisions that are more consistent, you actually will have a progressively better culture consistently rather than kind of coming in immediately two, three, three times a year, having a big overhaul of things. What, what are your thoughts yeah, on all that? That's a great thought. And I think you described it really well about these uh, surges uh, and sort of touch points that are you know, particularly highly visible uh, within an organization. Uh, and from my experience, most organizations start all of that way too soon. They are describing the who and the what and the how and the when um, and laying out all of the different elements uh, across the organization that are going to have to change. And most organizations start there. And that's a mistake. They all have to start with why. They need to start at step one, which is why it is that we need to change and spend a lot of time uh, on that step, getting people to understand the current situation, getting people to understand uh, why we need to change and uh, both the benefits that will um, 
accrue if we do that and the consequences that we'll realize if we don't. And so you have to, to me, spend a lot of time on the why, getting people to understand the need for change uh, and what the result will be if we do or don't do it. And then you can get into the what and the who and the when and all of the specific, um, you know, functional and individual behaviors uh, and processes that are going to need to be adjusted uh, to uh, make this change you know, really embed itself in the organization. Otherwise, you've got a lot of people who are asked to do some changes and they don't really know why. Um, you are focused on, you know, the end goal without looking at any of the milestones along the way. Um, no, everybody's busy doing a bunch of stuff, but no one, uh, none of that work is actually coordinated uh, and, and being focused towards um, a common goal. And to your point, we might check in six months later or nine months later um, and see, well, how's the change going? Those need to be almost daily, certainly uh, weekly type check-ins to make sure that people are on track and they understand why they're doing stuff and what are the progress points that you know we're trying to hit all along the way. You've got to check that all the time. It does no good to have a scoreboard that only shows the result of the game at the end of the game. You need to know how much time is left, how many timeouts you have, how many, what's the score now, um, what we need to do to get, you know, to the next uh, touchdown or three-point shot or whatever it is. Uh, people need that all along the way. You can't just wait uh, until, you know, there's five seconds left on the clock and you realize you're 50 points behind. you got to know what's going on all along the way. Do you have any – let's try to get – let's try to get super tangible – with this one actually because this is something I'm selfishly trying to figure out again I keep using the word operationalize because I'm trying to like see it in, re in real terms right so I'll give you an example so for me my schedule um, I have certain behaviors that are like a list of behaviors that I know create certain great moments for my business um, as well as me being a leader internally uh, there are certain things that I need to do. I have these lists of all these things where every six weeks or so, every four weeks or so, I audit my productivity. I audit those behaviors. I audit those actions. I audit myself as a leader, right? So that's a tangible thing that I personally do that I've always tried to make sure my partners and people around me try to do some form of variation of their, their own versions of those things. What, what does that look like in an organization? What does it look like for an entry level, mid level, you know, you know, you know, executive, what does that look like for individual individuals within a company to have this kind of consistent auditing process of their of their behaviors, of their actions, of tangible things they're doing in the internal communication space or whatever their domain within the company is? What does it look like to have this consistent auditing of all the different dynamics of their job, of their role, of their leadership capabilities, of their, their selves being within the organization. What does that look like tangibly and who's holding them accountable to that to make sure that auditing process is done and there are tweaks made along the way? What does that look like? Do you have any examples? Sure. So I think um, the first thing it looks like is um, we need to get rid of annual performance management reviews. Because what happens is, is that immediately ingrains in everybody in the organization that what you're doing matters, but it doesn't matter enough for us to check in uh, more regularly than once a year. And so as a result, the whole organization works towards, you know, year in performance review process um, and maybe five or six goals, broad goals that they're trying to accomplish either individually or as a team. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the year, we look at that list and say, did we or did we not do these things? Um, that creates, a, to me, a bad habit in the organization of, hey, we're only going to check in once a year. What we need to do uh, and what I've seen uh, done really well um, is folks like Cisco, for example, um, um, the technology company, um, they they have gotten away from annual performance reviews and instead have gone to, you know, in some cases, 
weekly check-ins with everyone on the team. And so they have taken what is typically a very broad, high-level, organization-wide process of performance reviews, and they have pushed it way, way, way down into the organization so that it is truly managers uh, and supervisors working with their individual employees and teams and taking stock of progress, you know, on a daily, weekly, certainly monthly basis against whatever the goals is it, uh, that have been established uh, for those individuals and those teams. And so those regular check-ins uh, by the, the employees and the managers and the leaders and the supervisors who are most directly responsible for all of the actual work that's happening in the organization, it's those regular check-ins that are really driving the total performance uh, of that company. And they do that on a regular basis, not annually, but often, in some cases, weekly. And everything that they're doing is aligned with the overall strategic goals and priorities for the organization, which is typically where companies kind of go amiss. They say, here's our goal for the year or the next two years and our strategic priorities that we're trying to accomplish. But then no one does the actual hard work of mapping that down to exactly, Anthony, what you're going to do all day long, every day, and how that matches up to what we're trying to do broadly as an organization. Somehow, there's always a disconnect between what the organization says it wants and then what employees want and need to do every day to be able to drive that. But folks like Cisco have, have looked at it a little bit differently uh, and are having a lot more success driving that conversation much deeper down in the organization and making sure that every behavior uh, on, at the individual and team level is exactly aligned with the very broad goals uh, and strategic priorities for the company. And then once that is set, am I wrong? Am I crazy for then wanting to support employees with this particular initiative that I'm about to say? Am I wrong or crazy to say, okay, that's set now. So now let me show you and help you design a process for you to audit yourself. And I'm holding you accountable to that auditing process. And I want to see, like, I guess what I'm trying to see a world is where employees and, 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 and managers and leaders and everyone in the company are, are finding ways to audit and self-assess themselves from, from a, a, a performance and a behavior standpoint and not necessarily always have to have those supervisors and those managers and those executives kind of say, okay, it's time for the pulse review. It's time for the quarterly right. review. What does that look like? Or am I just a little too progressive and crazy? No, I think that's exactly right. And I think there's ways for employees to sort of audit uh, and measure their own performance. Um, certainly there's digital tools uh, that can help track uh, KPIs and, and progress against whatever the important metrics are uh, for that individual role. And I think the employees themselves uh, ought to be responsible for monitoring their own progress because they're the, they're the ones, the, them and only them, can, uh, they're the ones who can impact the most uh, whether they're making progress. And if they're advancing against things, and they want to report that out, great. And if they're not able to do that because of X, Y, and Z challenges, they got to report that out too. And that, to me, is, is the best way to ensure that the whole organization is moving in the right direction is that when you get it down to the very individual level and they are holding themselves accountable through their own uh, measurement uh, practices, and then those ladder up to the team that they're a part of, and then that team ladders up into the broader function, and that function ladders on up uh, uh, higher up in the organization. But it really starts with each individual knowing what they're doing, what their progress is against what it is they're supposed to be doing, and then in involving their leaders and supervisors and helping them overcome challenges um, that are keeping them from making the kind of progress that they need to make. But it really, it really starts with them being able to monitor that and adjust it themselves on the fly. And then doing that practice actually starts to create self-awareness capabilities at the individual level, which helps managers, right? Because if, I'm, if I have a group of employees that I know are self-aware and audited themselves, 
and having that operational kind of discipline that they always act on, I now am starting to learn a little bit more about their learning styles, their short, their, their, their shortcomings, their gaps. I now understand who they are as an individual, what they're struggling on, how their brain works, how they're viewing their work, how they're viewing the world. So now I can make more contextual decisions around how I can support them rather than just kind of coming in and enacting a standard structure and a standard policy around a quarterly or in some cases, like you said, a yearly review. I now can kind of keep a pulse on how they're viewing themselves, which allows me to understand them better as well. Well, that's exactly right. And what you just described is the difference between a manager and a leader. A manager is micromanaging and watching processes um, and typically collecting data and sending that to who knows where um, and then responding to however it is those people react to whatever that data is. And then, you know, getting other people to adjust um, what they're doing as a result of that instead of leading, instead of coaching their teams about uh, what the development gaps are, instead of providing insight on how to solve different problems and challenges, instead of, you know, looking at what if instead of what is all the time. Um, If we can free these leaders and managers and supervisors from the daily drudgery um, of managing their teams and managing their functions and free them so that they're able to lead their teams and lead their functions, that would create a sea change uh, of opportunity inside every organization uh, on the planet um, because they're all mired in managing all of the what is. Uh, and that middle management layer spends all their time reporting um, and and talking about whatever the what is, is instead of concentrating their efforts on what if we did this differently, what if I was able to help close these gaps, what if I was able to help the team overcome some of these hurdles that I can clear out of their way. We spend too much time on the what is and not nearly enough on the what if. Out of the box question a bit. Can you, can you speak to how brands should measure their internal communication efforts, not from an employee engagement or employee experience perspective, but from a financial bottom line slash productivity perspective. So, you know, one thing that I've tried to do a great job since half of my career has been, you know, a CEO slash an executive of, of startups that I decided to get off the ground. And then half of it's being spent as a head of people. What I've always tried to do a great job of is walk the fine line between creating situations and moments that really create uh, more autonomy and flexibility and empathy for the employee. And then always trying to find a way for that to show up and impact the bottom line and the productivity. So how do we, what are some measuring examples you can show me around, you know, different internal communication efforts and how it, you know, impacts the bottom line. So if you're sitting down with a CEO or an executive and you're internally, you know, that executive that runs and stewards the internal communication efforts, how can you show them that, you know, these three initiatives have actually impacted our productivity or impacted our bottom line to create more revenue? What what does that look like? You you have asked um, the best question um, about, uh, helping internal comms be more effective uh, in an organization that you could possibly ask. And here's why. Um, Most internal comms functions uh, are focused on tracking uh, how well um, all of their uh, efforts uh, are doing based on the outputs. So how many town halls, how many articles, how many posts, how many videos, how many likes, What was the attendance? Mm -hmm. You know, they're measuring all of the uh, outputs, which are great. They need to. They need to know all of those things. But it's not the outputs that matter to the C-suite. It's the outcomes that matter. And so what typically happens is internal comms folks will say, oh, we just want to see the table. We want to be able to go to the big boy meeting uh, and sit in there with everybody else. Um, But the difference is, is that when everybody else comes into that meeting, They bring in numbers and data, and we show up with arts and crafts. 
you know, words and pictures of all these great projects that we did. And look how cool this video is. So what? You know, yes, those things need to be great. Uh, we know that as communicators, um, but as trusted business partners, we have to define what the outcomes are of all of those things. And we as an industry are not very good at doing that. If we look down the hall at our friends in marketing, they are excellent at doing mm -hmm. that. They can tell you exactly how much money they spent on this particular ad campaign and what the ROI was for it. And when they go in that meeting and say, hey, we spent a million and the ROI was, you know, 68%. If you give us 3 million, we can make that 82%. They're going to get 3 million because they've proven whether they were effective or not with numbers and data and analysis. Internal comms doesn't do that. And that is the huge opportunity for everyone in this industry, which is to tie every single thing they're doing in internal comms uh, and support it with data uh, and analysis and then go into that meeting and talk about the ROI of it, not how many likes, not how great the, the quality was on the video, but what were the outcomes that happened as a result of those things? How did we move engagement? How do we move alignment? How did we lower the turnover rate? Or how did we increase you know, satisfaction or you know, increase uh, safety? All of the things that matter the most inside the organization that people are tracking on a daily basis already, what are we doing to impact those numbers in a positive way? And then how do we go in and show that what we did actually impacted those things in a positive way? We are very, very poor at that, and that is a huge opportunity for us. So how, how do you think we can do it? What's, what's one maybe tangible thing that we can do? What, what's one way, like, do you have an example, like a just a macro-level case study of, okay, we you know, we conducted this one initiative and we can track how it impacted the bottom line. I mean, yeah, track how it impacted the productivity of, of these set of employees. And then a new idea was, it was created that inevitably turned into a new product that inevitably got rolled down into a, uh, a high revenue stream. Cause that's, cause that's, you know, from again, from afar and now being in this space, that's what I've realized is that, there's a little bit of a mapping and unpacking that road road that has to actually occur. It's not always so direct like the marketing department, right? It's sure. not always so direct yeah. like the finance or the operations department. It's not always so direct. So what's maybe a, a, a path that you, we can walk down for a second to show how this can inevitably connect if someone's listening? Well, here's an example uh, in, a, in a retail organization. So uh, we're working with a retail organization um, they've got, you know, multiple uh, brick and mortar stores uh, across the United States, and they're broken into four regions. You know, this region has this many stores, this region has this many, and so on. And so uh, because it's a retail organization, you know, there's a store manager, and then there's usually some sort of a regional leader, and then there's ultimately, you know, the operations leader for all of the regions. And what we discovered was, uh, almost all the regions were performing the same, um, but everybody wanted them to be to perform at a higher level. But no one wanted to do um, sort of a broad internal comms campaign about how to make things better, because as most organizations are, like we talked about earlier, there's a little bit of risk involved mm -hmm. in that. So what if we try that and all regions perform, le you know, less well? So what we did was, all right, let's just do a pilot in one region. So three regions are going to keep doing what they're doing, but one region is going to do things a little bit differently. And the only thing they're going to do differently is they're going to hear from their senior leaders uh, in the region more often with updates about how the business is going and a lot of, of ways to motivate and inspire those employees to actually you know, be more focused and aligned about around what they were trying to do. So we're going to do that just in one region, just for one quarter, and we're not going to do it in the other three regions. And lo and behold, at the end of the quarter, the region where we did that had a three to seven point jump in uh, performance, particularly around same store sales and profitability compared to the other three regions. And the only difference was we had the leaders in that region communicate more often about what 
how things are going and what more we need to do to make those things go better. That was the only difference between those uh, four regions was one did it and the other three mm. didn't. So what we're able to do then is, is have that senior leader for that region go into the big meeting with the C-suite and say, we did this pilot in this region and we had these results and the investment for this internal comms campaign was X. The return on it was Y. If we try this in the other three regions, we expect the same type of results. Can we have the budget to do it? And the immediate answer was yes. Because we went in with numbers and data and insights that show the investment in helping the leaders be better communicators in this region showed up on the bottom line. It's not some fluffy, you know, silly, you know, uh, empathetic kind of thing um, that people do just, you know, when they have extra time to do it. It is a strategic part of what leadership needs to be doing in that organization. And when they do it well, it shows up on the bottom line. That's an agree. Yeah. You could you could say that you could say that till the cows come home, but in, and it's just your opinion until you have the numbers to back it up. And when we have the numbers to back it up, that's a much easier conversation to have, and it show and it's proof, actual proof, to people who make decisions based on numbers, not words and pictures, but numbers, that if we make this investment, we can expect the same result in the other regions. And the uh, immediate answer was yes, let's do it in the other regions. And then the next quarter, all four regions uh, performed better than they did before we did anything. That was a one-to-one -one correlation between the investment in internal comms and the return to the bottom line. That's beautiful. That That is a very, very good example. And I think, um, I think that's super practical for a lot of uh, companies and leaders listening to, to apply. Um, my, my final question is this. This is a big question here. Um, mm -hmm. So I want you to brace yourself here. Are you, are you sitting down? Are you comfortable? <laughs> I am. I'm comfortable. I'm very comfortable. Okay, good. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've set you up this entire time for this one question. Um, okay. So the majority of the listeners range, right? A lot of them are ahead of people. A lot of them are, um, you know, internal comms executives. Uh, a lot of them, though, uh, about 70%, 65 percent uh, are now turning into you know startup founders and internal startup leaders and small to, to medium size so let's call it let's call it you know let's call it a hundred to 600 or so employees uh, of a size of a company and the executives that, that are within those type of, of brands and so a lot of them are very progressive a lot of them still are not big enough yet we're there's 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 a lack of desire to change and a lack of ability to be flexible right as i and as i'm sure you can understand the bigger they get sometimes the harder to change management process is so um here's something that i'm pushing for tell me how crazy i am but even beyond how crazy i am i want you to speak directly to these these individuals that i'm really thinking of in my mind and tell them how this can happen so i made a piece of content probably two weeks ago uh, the, the tagline, the headline was, uh, I think it's something like the, the reason why the head of people needs to be the CEO or something like that. And obviously it was a nice little branding thing that I did, but inevitably I talked about, you know, internal communication executives, head of people, you know, all these other, you know, aspects and executives at the C-suite level, why they need to kind of be in their own bubble and not ask for permission, not ask for a seat at the table, have it to not act, like, like, I don't believe, like, I don't believe a COO or a CFO should be telling a head of people or a head of internal communications what the budget should be. I should be telling you what the budget should be because I don't go into your domain and the C I don't go to your space CFO. I don't go to your space CMO. I don't go to your space CEO and tell you how to do these things. You brought me in to trust and believe in what I'm doing. Allow me to run this domain and set the strategy, set the budget, set the realities of what this should be. And if there's an issue with the margins and there's an issue with the finances, let's have that objective conversation as a unit, as a team. But I should not be coming to you with my hand out begging and pleading to try to make a case for why you should open up your budget 
or open up your ego to allow this decision to be made. I should be letting you know as a courtesy kind of. Now, Jason, I know I'm crazy. I know this is a young, egotistical maniac on this call right now, on this podcast right now with this perspective. <laughs> but the people that are listening right now are still small enough, Jason, to actually do what I'm asking. Right. What would you say right. to those companies right now of how to make that a possibility where the CEO looks out ahead of people and say, you know what? I'm going to let you, anything that touches the people, I'm going to let you do what you got to do. It's, you have a big green light for me outside of a few things that maybe we can outline, but you got a big green light. There, there's, there's, there's never going to be a moment outside of a few things that we can talk about where I'm going to question, I'm going to make you feel small, or I'm going to make you feel like you need to get an approval you have a big green light of approval outside of these three to four different aspects. What does that look like? And is that possible? Um, uh, Not only is it possible, um, it's absolutely necessary. Um, I don't think what you said was maniacal in any way. It's not happening uh, at all. It's it's not happening. um, And there's to me a couple of reasons why it's not happening. Um, one, a long time ago in my career, someone told me that the person with the plan is the person who wins. And so if you will sit down and put together a plan um, and then submit that to whoever it is you need to submit it to, whatever ends up happening will ultimately be a version of your plan because no one else is submitting a plan. And so even if they don't take your plan 100% the way you submitted it, what they will end up with is some version of your plan. So first of all, you got to have a plan. Secondly, one of the reasons that uh, people constantly go and, and beg for money and you know, want the type of trusted advisor relationship uh, with the senior leaders but don't really have it um, is because that's earned over time. That is a trust relationship that is built over time. And just like with your own, you know, personal checking account, with a trust account, you've got to make deposits into that account because every now and then there's going to be a withdrawal. And the last thing you want to have happen is to be overdrawn. Should should it not be given though? You don't, you don't believe should be given and then taken away over time? Um, I I don't think humans operate that way. I I would love it if they did. But particularly in a a corporate structure that is more political than it should be, I think uh, rather than giving you the benefit of the doubt, it's the other way around. You're guilty until proven innocent. That's horrible. And so (laughs) you've you've got to constantly put deposits into that Mm -hmm. trust account so that you do begin to earn that trust. And you do get to the point um, where you can go in and say, here's what I think we ought to do. Here's my plan. Here's the budget that goes with it. Um, you know, I strongly believe that we should do exactly what's on here. Um, That way you've now earned the right to be able to come in and give them the recommendations for what to do instead of waiting for them to either come to you and tell you what it is they want to do or have them constantly uh, react and say, no, we're not doing this. No, we're not doing that. No, we can't afford this. And the way that you do that, the best way to do that over time is to continuously prove the value of what it is you're doing. And so if you're in HR, you know, you want to show that recruiting is up, Uh, compensation costs uh, are managed, Uh, turnover uh, is low, Um, development of our uh, employees uh, is on the right track. Um, our, our entire uh, onboarding process uh, runs uh, extremely well. So all of the pieces and tactics and outputs that you are responsible for, whether it's HR or internal comms or whatever your role might be, those have to be running exactly right because every time they do, that's just another deposit into the trust account. So that then you can say all those things are working really well, all these outputs that we're measuring look exactly the way they are supposed to look. And here are the outcomes we are achieving as a result of that. And if you would like better outcomes, then we can create more things to drive more outputs to create better outcomes. If we have you know, more resources, more money, a bigger team, um, whatever it might be. 
But until you prove all of those things and have a plan that is supported by that proof, then you're just going in there and asking and begging just like anybody else. And the people that get ahead, the functions that get all the budget and support are the ones that A, have a plan and B, have that supported with the outcomes that matter the most to that business. I was very well said. Jason, um, where, where can people find you? You can find me on thinkaudacity.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter uh, and LinkedIn at Jason Anthoin. Um, I'm on Instagram at Jason Anthoin underscore audacity. Uh, I have my own podcast called Do Less Bad. Um, it's at dolessbad.com. Um, and I frequently speak at conferences and webinars and other folks' podcasts just like this one. So um, if you're interested in anything I've got to say, that's where I stand. Well, I appreciate this so much. I will be pinging you shortly when it's all edited, and uh, hopefully you share a bit. And, and I really appreciate this. It was an honor. Well, it was my pleasure to do it, Anthony. Thank you so much. I think the work that you're doing on this podcast and, and a lot of your other uh, endeavors and initiatives matter. Um, it gets people thinking in a different way um, and gets people more focused on what if instead of being mired in what is. Um, and we need more of that. Uh, we need more exactly of that. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. We'll talk very soon.